This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The dream came to her in the water. She was six, she always said. In the Pacific, at the foot of the cliffs, rippled sandstone, orange in the late summer light, at Point Loma, at the mouth of San Diego Bay. Her parents watching, smiling on a blanket on the beach, or splashing nearby in the surf, beaming at their girl, how she took to the water, a mermaid, a harbor seal. They didn't have much, her parents. Dad was a cop, mom kept the house. They didn't have much, but they had the sea, right down the block, down the worn path lined with wildflowers and sea beans that snaked down the hill from the lighthouse. And that was enough. It was everything to Florence, who spent her childhood in the water at the edge of America, swimming the channel where conquistadors sailed 400 years before, where the Pacific fleet would pass through on its way to Wake Island and Guadalcanal some 20 years later. Florence Chadwick learned to swim, to read the currents and the rhythm of the waves, to keep her hips up, to reach out as far as she could, and to breathe, right arm, breathe, left arm, right arm, breathe, left arm, and on and on and onward. She was 10 when she first swam all the way across the mouth of the bay. And the dream that had come to her in the water, the dream she'd had now for more than half her life, must have started to feel possible. She would swim the English Channel one day. Two years earlier, an American, Gertrude Ederling, just 19 years old herself, had done it, had become the first woman and just the sixth person to swim from England to France, or vice versa. It had seemed an impossible feat, until this band of ocean, this unbreachable barrier that had once kept barbarians and Napoleon and the Spanish Armada at bay, was pierced, first by a British sailor in 1875, and then in 1926, by a young New Yorker, faster than any of the five men before her by nearly two full hours. There's an item in the local paper of Clovis, California, a cow town in the Central Valley, about six hours and a world away from San Diego. From the summer of 31, there's a photo of Florence in a black bathing suit with two white stars on one of the shoulder straps. She's got a bobbed, hydrodynamic haircut. An awkward, adolescent, purse-lipped smile sits a little over wide on her face. She hugs her knees to her chest. The caption says, Olympic prospect. She is 12 years old. She had already won prestigious races in the open ocean against adults, against men, and was training in the pool for the 1932 Summer Games to take place just up the coast road in LA. She didn't make the team that next year or for the Berlin Olympics in 36 because she wasn't that good in the pool. I mean, she was better than most, better than me, and I am going to guess better than you, no offense. But Florence got used to the view from the lower podiums and barely missing the cut, being runner-up. Because what she was good at, what she was great at, wasn't in the Olympics. The skills that she had developed, the expertise earned over countless days spent in the ocean, the lessons learned about tides and currents and technique and pace and repeatable movements and sharks and jellyfish and skincare, the way she came to know her own body, know her breath and her balance, 
the way she built that body to do things that other peoples couldn't do, adapt it to move through a moving world, to rise and fall as that world rose and fell around her, to withstand its cold and to push fearlessly through its darkness, to go for hours and hours and hours, onward and onward and onward. Those skills didn't translate to the 50-meter backstroke. There was a race every year back home in San Diego, two and a half miles in rough water, across the bay. A sprint for her, basically. But there was no Olympic medal for her kind of swimming, and no way to make money doing it. But she loved it, and she still dreamed that dream. She went to San Diego State, she took office jobs, and would take to the ocean every chance she got. She got married, twice. Once before the war, once during the war, and got divorced twice. She said that learning to be a good wife would take time that she didn't have and would require passion she couldn't muster. Not for marriage, anyway. Instead, her passion brought her to Saudi Arabia, where she took a job at an American oil company. And every morning and every night, and every chance she got when she wasn't working an adding machine in the secretarial pool, she was in the Persian Gulf, training for the channel. Right arm, breathe, left arm. Right arm, breathe, left arm day after day, onward and onward and onward for two years straight. And in 1950, a British paper put up prize money for anyone who could swim the 21 miles from the continent to the British Isles. No one had done it in 16 years. But they wouldn't let her enter the contest. She wasn't famous enough. She wasn't an Olympian. She was a secretary. So at 31 years old, she took the money she'd made at the Arabian American Oil Company, and she funded her own assault on the channel hiring boats, paying for hotels, bringing her father, the California cop, to France so he could ride in the fishing boat beside her through the churning channel, shout encouragements, as he had done from the beach at the foot of Point Loma when she first learned to swim away from him. And on August 8, 1950, at 2.30 in the morning, she stepped along the rocks at the edge of the land. She slipped into the cold waves, and she went to work. Hips up reaching out as far as she could, rising and falling with the world around her, fearless in the dark, in foreign waters that spoke the same old language of currents and tides. Right arm, breathe, left arm, right arm, breathe, left arm. Her father calling out, beaming, feeding her sugar cubes. Right arm, breathe, left arm, right arm, breathe, left arm. Onward and onward and onward. Florence Chadwick, a 31-year-old typist from California, completed her channel swim, she set up a new women's record of 13 hours, 23 minutes. Watched by spectators from the cliffs between Dover and Deal, she finished in great style after a very fine effort indeed. A real triumph, for it was her first attempt. Newsreels like this one made her world famous. There were parades and interviews and autographs and endorsements. I drink chocolate-flavored Ovaltine. An athlete wants real nourishment. This was all just reward, commensurate with this spectacular achievement. She had swum the English Channel, a feat that had held particular power in a particularly powerful culture for as long as anyone could remember. An extraordinary physical feat that, for time, was the very definition of a physical feat. 
And after she did it, after she stepped out onto the sand at the foot of the Cliffs of Dover and smiled for the cameras, ecstatic and all teeth this time, she got into a boat and went back to France. It was a quicker trip. But for that, I don't know, like an hour and a half, in the late afternoon in midsummer, her body sore but light, warmer now in the sun, her swim cap off, her hair blowing, her dad there, and friends and strangers and fans and camera crews waiting on the opposite shore to wish her well, to celebrate her achievement and shine for a bit in her glow. There she is on a boat in the breeze, having done at 31 what she'd set out to do at six. I am tempted to leave her there and leave you there with her on that boat in that moment. Because who wouldn't want to stay there in a moment like that? But she is 31. She will die at 77 in 1995 of leukemia in San Diego. And it will be too young. But there is so much life to live between this moment on that boat and the end. And though there will be no other moment like this one, when the world first learns her name, when the dream she's fulfilled is so pure and precise and easily understood and explained, there will be other moments and other dreams. There has to be, with so much life left to live. Florence Chadwick spent hers in the open water. She went on to swim the English Channel four times, each to diminishing fanfare because, come on. During one of those crossings, she became the first woman to swim it in both directions. She became the first woman to swim the Straits of Gibraltar, the Bosphorus, the Dardanelles, the channel between the California mainland and Catalina Island. It's 22 miles. She did it three times. She went around the world, going anywhere where there was a community with a channel that needed crossing, some gap that had defined distance and possibility for generations there that needed redefining. Sometimes she failed. She didn't make it across Lake Ontario. She tried three times to cross the North Channel from Ireland to Scotland. 18 frigid miles. Never made it. She taught swimming. She spent summers at one of those fancy resorts in the Catskills, coaching kids in the pool, and probably longing for the sea. In 1974, she rode in the boat like her dad did, alongside a student from San Diego State. He tried to swim the channel, but didn't make it. And I could leave you there. Florence in her 50s, her record-breaking days behind her, beaming at a student, hitching her hopes to another woman in the water. But let's leave you in the water, with Florence, and any one of those countless days, any one of those races or crossings, or just some evening after work. Florence Chadwick in the ocean, hips up, reaching as far as she can. Right arm, breathe, left arm. Right arm, breathe, left arm. And on and on, and onward and onward, and onward and onward, and onward and onward and onward and onward.
The Memory Palace is produced by me with engineering assistance from Kathy Tu and research assistance from Andrew Milne. The show is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, which is supported by MailChimp, which embraces teamwork, chaos, and creativity, and by AdZerk, which helps us out with ad serving technology. And as I do from time to time, I want to take a moment to tell you about one of the other shows here in the Radiotopia family. It is called Fugitive Waves. It's produced by Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. And if you are a public radio listener, then you probably know them as the Kitchen Sisters. They have been the Kitchen Sisters on public radio for decades. And even if you don't, um, if you listen to storytelling podcasts like uh, This American Life or 99% Invisible or Radio Lab, you name it, then you hear them all the time. If not their actual voices, you hear their approach to radio, to telling stories, to finding stories. Something they pioneered has become part of all of our creative DNA. And Fugitive Waves is the Kitchen Sisters at their best, which makes it radio at its best. Learn more and subscribe to Fugitive Waves at radiotopia.fm. If you like this episode, take a second to share it on your various social media channels or, I don't know, burn a CD and mail it to your uncle or whatever. Um, Meantime, thanks, and uh, thanks for listening. Talk to you again.